You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, it's the most important day in the calendar year for a Christian. The biggest day. I, I like to think of it as the, the Super Bowl of the Christian faith. The most important date. What is it? What's the most important date in the calendar for Christians? Easter. I think I heard Easter. Were you thinking Easter? Hands up if you're thinking Easter. All right, all right. Easter, that's right. It is the, the biggest day. And uh, because it's, it's a, the, the time in which, of course, on Good Friday, when we think about the death of Jesus Christ and the cross for sin, and then when we come to Easter Sunday, well, there it is, the resurrection of Jesus, the one who conquered sin and conquered death. And, and the life that he lives, he gives to us now by faith. And really, loved ones, we've got, if it's not for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've got nothing. There's no Christianity. Christmas is important. Christmas is very important because we think about Jesus coming into the world to accomplish this. But I think of it this way. To me, Christmas is kind of like the gray cup. Okay, great. It's a big deal, especially here in Canada, big deal, but it's not that, but it's just kind of, it's nothing like the Super Bowl, right? The Super Bowl is the event. And uh, the reason I'm saying this uh, to you this morning is, uh, well, for one, I don't know if you knew this, but six weeks from now is Easter. It's amazing. It's coming quick, which means spring is coming, which brings other tidings of good news. But spring is coming, but Easter is coming six weeks from now. And the relevance of all this for us right here this moment is because today I'm starting a new teaching series that is a study of what took place during the week that Jesus died. The week that Jesus died, the week that he was raised from the dead, our series is a study of the final days of Jesus earthly life, day by day, Sunday through the following weekend, what took place in those days. Now, I got reasons for doing this besides the fact that Easter is coming. Uh, this is a week that it seems evident to me that God wants us to know about. Do you know, have you noticed how much attention, if you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four Gospels we call them in the New Testament, that tell us about the, the life and ministry of Jesus. Have you ever noticed how much attention is given to that one week in those four books? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is somewhere between a quarter and a third of the content of those three books is all focused on that one week in Jesus' life, the week that he was crucified. When you read the Gospel of John, about half of that whole book is all concentrated on that one week, the final week of the earthly life of Jesus. So it seems apparent to me that God wants us to, to take notice of it. There's things that happened that week that God wants us to know about. So to me, it's, it's worth our time. It's worth a study to look and see what happened on each day, each day that week. But also, too, when we study Scripture... And we take our time, and we're not, maybe not in a rush like we maybe sometimes are, but when we linger a little longer over portions of Scripture, I find that the Holy Spirit many times will show us things as we study them, as we, we're not in a hurry, we'll just sort of go slowly. I find the Holy Spirit shows us things about Jesus that not only inform us, but transform us as we, by faith, encounter him. 
It's an amazing thing that there, there's things that we see when we maybe take our time. And of course, this isn't going to be an exhaustive study. There's so much material. But I don't want to be in a rush. That's why I want to go one day at a time. Because I think there's benefit in taking our time and lingering a little longer over a passage to see what the Lord would have to say. Just kind of illustrate this. I want to show you a picture here. It's a, a painting that my wife and I came across a number of years ago. And um, if my memory serves me right, we gave it away to somebody, but I have a picture of it here. And um, you, if you've ever been to Israel and been on a trip to Israel, you may recognize it right away. One of our young women was just recently in Israel and visited this very place. It's a painting of what's called the Garden Tomb. And the Garden Tomb is a traditional place where it's believed by many that this is where Jesus was buried for that first Easter weekend. This is the, the tomb from which he, he arose and, and came to life again. Now, it's not the only place. There's another, there's another place not far from here that's also believed by many others to be the burial place of Jesus. We don't know for sure, for sure, which is right, if either of them. But if you want to know my personal opinion, pure opinion, I kind of think this might actually be the spot. But no matter, it's a very fascinating place to visit because it gives you a sense of what it looked like and what it was when Jesus was buried and then he arose from the dead. And I can tell you the tomb is empty. Both tombs are empty, okay, just so you know. Now, one of the reasons I show you this picture, of course, is because this is a reminder of where it is we're going in this series. We're going to that place of hope. We're going to that resurrection. That's where we're headed. We're going to go through the cross, but there's good news in the, the other side about the resurrection of Jesus. So it's a picture of kind of where we're going. But the other reason I wanted to show this to you is that there's more in this painting than what meets the eye. At first glance, it indeed is a painting of the garden tomb. But if you look very, very closely, you'll see within this painting that the artist has put in different images that have something to do with the life and ministry of Jesus and the prophecies of scripture that tell about his coming and his saving work. Now, if you're struggling to see, it's very likely it's because of my poor photography skills, okay? But if you'd like afterwards, I'm sure the team up there would be happy to put this up if you want to come and have a real close look at it. But I'll just tell you, trust me, we've, we've gone through this painting, and I can tell you that, that hidden in plain sight in this painting are the following images. There are angels in this painting that are announcing Christ's birth. There's a shepherd. There's three lambs. The town of Bethlehem, Mary and Jesus are depicted in here, descending doves, like when Jesus was baptized, the, descending, the, the spirit descended like a dove. The loaves and fish, fishes, fish are in there. The, the Palm Sunday Road, which we'll talk about today, Jesus at Gethsemane, Jesus with the crown of thorns, Jesus on a cross. All these things are depicted in that painting if you look carefully. Now, some of you are maybe seeing, it, seeing some of those things right now, and others of you are just like, I don't believe it. I haven't seen anything yet except that painting. Trust me, they're there. The key thing, though, is that you'll never see any of that if all you do is take a glance. But if you look at it carefully and linger a little longer, you'll see things that are hidden there in plain sight. Beautiful things. Powerful images. This is kind of my approach in this teaching series. As I preach these next few weeks, I want to lead us in a thoughtful, careful, meditative study of the person and work 
of Jesus in the events leading up to and through his death and resurrection. And as we do that, I'm praying and trusting the Lord with you that he will show us things, he'll tell us things and show us things that will help us to see and savor him, to to better appreciate who he is and what he's accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. And my purpose, my purpose is really revival. My, My purpose is that you would personally encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. The last several weeks, in fact, the last seven weeks, we've been in a teaching series where we've been reading the words of Jesus, letters that Jesus wrote in Revelation 2 and 3 to, to the, the church, to churches. And uh, the, while there's been personal application, to be sure, the thrust of those letters is corporate. It's a message for the churches, for us together as a family of believers, That's been our our emphasis, kind of the thrust of the series we've just come out of. Now in this new series, I want to go a lot more personal. There certainly will be corporate application, but I'm especially interested in your personal transformation through a personal encounter of Jesus as we draw near to him, looking to him in Scripture in this final week of his earthly life. My prayer and my passion is that in this series we would experience renewed worship and reignited passion for him, that there would be radical inner transformation and even in some revitalized faith and authenticity and obedience and joy. There may even be some raw, real confession and and perhaps even in some new saving faith as you look to Jesus, with the eyes of your heart to see him, by the work of the Spirit to hear him, and in worship to commune with him, all in an effort as we study these texts to encounter Jesus. So let's begin the journey. Let's begin the journey by going back to the first day in the final week of the earthly life of Jesus and read from Matthew his eyewitness account about what took place that day. Our scripture is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, and I would invite you to turn with me there. Uh, to this text, and uh, we're going back about 2,000 years-ish. There's a lot of debate about exact dates, but I'll suggest to you the date was March the 29th, A.D. 33, the year 33. And to give you some perspective, here we are on Sunday. So Thursday night, by the time you crawl into bed Thursday night, that is if you're not working the night shift, by the time you crawl into bed Thursday night, Jesus will have been arrested By the time you get to work on Friday morning, he'll been crucified. By the time you eat dinner on Friday evening, they will be burying him. And then a week today, when we gather this time one week from now, he will have already risen from the dead. In a short period of time, he accomplished much. That gives you some perspective about uh, where we're at here in the life of Jesus and what's going to happen in these next few days and for us these next few weeks Well, here's what Matthew says took place at the beginning of that week on the Sunday as Jesus arrived in the place in the city where he would be executed in Jerusalem. It says in verse 1, Matthew 21, verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, Bethpage is a a little village just outside of Jerusalem, and when they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village, that's into Bethphage, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
if, if you're not a farm person like me, it's the, the donkey, the, the mama donkey and the baby donkey, okay? The little foal there, the colt. Untie them, Jesus says, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, just to pause here for a minute, there's, there's lots of discussion and debate about, you know, did Jesus have something arranged ahead of time? Like, had he already been to the village and talked to some people and, and made arrangements? Or is this just Jesus showing his knowledge of all things and, and, uh, and acting providentially and saying, I know because I know when you go, this is what you'll find and you may be asked and when you are, this is what you will say? I think the latter, actually, I'm, I'm quite, quite certain, but uh, who knows, maybe he made some arrangements. There's, there's no question here, though, that Jesus is acting very, very intentionally. Okay, he's not going to get on a donkey or its colt because his feet are tired or because he thinks it's faster. It, it's not going to be. In fact, it's going to take longer because he's going to go wait for them to go get these animals and bring them to him. He's very intentional. You say, well, what's, what's the intention? Well, look at verse 4, and, and Matthew tells us, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, now here's Zechariah, the prophet, in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9, this is what he said, behold, your king is coming to you, Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So see, there's, there's intentionality here. Jesus is, he knows what the scriptures have prophesied, and he is acting in such a way that the scriptures are being fulfilled. And whatever's taking place here is not accidental or haphazard, but very intentional. Well, it says in verse 6, it says, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. The other gospel writers tell us that there was an interchange with the owner. I mean, imagine, imagine you, just try to think, like, what would be the modern, you know, the modern equivalent? Like, imagine you went out this morning, and there in your driveway, there's somebody getting into your car. And you're like, uh, excuse me, uh, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. Oh, okay then, okay. And he needs your moped too. Okay, go ahead. Take take it away then. That's that's fine. That's kind of like kind of like what happened. They just show up and and take it, and it just tells me the Lord's in control here and and working in a powerful way. The disciples went, verse six, and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now when it says them, it means the cloaks. Okay, so ban banished from your right. Jesus is not straddling two animals walking. Okay, that, that's not the picture here. No, he got on the colt. He got on the baby donkey, all right? For us non-farm people, the baby donkey got on that one. Now think about it. I don't know a whole lot about animals. But I can imagine that it's not the easiest thing in the world to ride an animal that's never been ridden before. And yet here we see Jesus. He seems to know a thing or two about the animal kingdom. And he rides this donkey into town. It says, verse 8, most of the crowd, now there's a crowd gathering, there's already a crowd with him, there's more gathering as he makes his way toward Jerusalem. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So they're paying homage, it's a, a symbol and sign of honor and exaltation. And the crowds, verse 9, the crowds that went before him, so Jesus is making his way down into Jerusalem, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we've got some worship songs where we sing Hosanna, don't we, right? Hosanna, Hosanna. Yeah. Do you, ever, do you ever realize what it is that you're singing when you sing Hosanna? It's a cry of salvation. Literally, originally, it's, it means like save. God save us. God save us. In time, it became an expression of acclamation and praise. But make no mistake about it. This crowd is saying something that they are seeing about Jesus. That he is God's anointed that he's the appointed one. He is, scripture refers to the Messiah. He's the one long promised in the Old Testament to come and to save. And they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. They're acknowledging him as the, the promised king who would come. And they're looking to him to be a savior. Question, what kind of a savior are they looking for him to be? The crowds are cheering him on this day and praising him and exalting him. But there will be another crowd in five days who will not be cheering him, but will be jeering him and ridiculing him and crying out, crucify him. I think that this crowd who's praising him on Sunday had really no understanding of what he was intending for on Friday. I think they were looking for a savior. I really do. The Jews were living under the scourge of Rome, the hated Romans. You can imagine a, a people not your own occupying your land and running your country with traditions and rules and laws that are contrary to your traditionally held beliefs. And there they are suffering under Rome and longing for God to interfere. And here in this moment, I think, that they think that that's what Jesus came to do, to save them from their circumstance. And I think that's why there's so much excitement and uproar and, and chatter and, and, and laying of branches and worshiping God and whooping it up because they think, finally, oh, finally, we've got a Savior who comes to save us from our circumstance. And I wonder if that's how you think of Jesus, as a Savior who can maybe save you from your circumstance. Like maybe you're on a tough road right now and you've got some challenges, you've got some difficulties that you want God to free you from. I'm not saying that God won't free you from it. He may indeed, but understand this, that of all the problems that we've got, and we've all got problems, the biggest problem you have is not your circumstances. The biggest problem you have is your sin. In fact, the crisis of all crises is this one here is how will you and I as sinners ever stand before a holy God? The answer is that we won't. And this Jesus came, the crowds, I believe, anticipate he's going to come, and now he's going to, with great power, they know he works miracles, they know he's got great power, they perceive he's God's anointed one, but they're thinking in their minds, this is it, we're getting our land back, we're going to overthrow Rome, and God's going to set up this earthly kingdom here and now, but... What they didn't perceive, what they didn't fathom, is that Jesus came firstly to deal with a far greater issue, an issue that infects all of us, the issue, the issue of sin. Loved ones, what are you looking for Jesus to do? I think some of you are looking for Jesus to do far too little. You want salvation from your trouble, from your frustrations, but you've got a bigger problem still. 
And that's what Jesus came to deal with, to deal with your sin problem. Well, there's all this excitement. Verse 10, it says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. That phrase there, stirred up, literally means quaked. Like it shook. The, the city's whole city is vibrating with excitement. Maybe you've been in a sporting event where there's lots of cheering and noise and you can feel the seat shaking a little bit as there's so much fervor or maybe a, a political rally of some kind. That's the kind of thing that's going on. It says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? There's so much wonder about him and who he is and what he's about to do. Verse 11, and the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This scene that we have just read, I believe, is a dramatic scene of self-disclosure by Jesus. That is to say that God is showing us here at least two things about Jesus that God wants you and I to see. So Hope Niagara, firstly, look and see the authority of Jesus. Look and see the authority of Jesus. Jesus' authority is seen here, is demonstrated here, is proclaimed here in very dramatic fashion. I think three ways especially. His authority is seen in his position, in his power, and in his purpose. His position is that he's king. Jesus is revealed here as king. In fact, if you notice in the prophecy that we read, in verse 5, it uses that word exactly. Verse 5, quoting from the Old Testament, say to the daughter of Zion, or to the Israelites, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Your king is coming to you. This is a dramatic scene in which Jesus is revealed as king. You know, it's, it was a, it's a royal, uh, it's, a ro it's a parable here that's making a point showing the royalty of Jesus. In fact, you can see this in the Old Testament. If you were to read, for example, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, you read there about uh, when Solomon was named king by his father David, there was a similar procession uh, acknowledging Solomon as king, the son of David. He rode on a mule in a procession of people celebrating, making a great noise and uh, God's provision for them. And whether or not this was front of mind for those people that were with Jesus, it's clear to me that it is front of mind for God. Because Jesus is being shown here as a king. And actually, when you read the other gospel accounts of this, it's super clear. Like, uh, for example, Mark 11, verse 10, he quotes the people saying this. In the same situation, he quotes the people saying, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Luke, in his report on this account, Luke 19 and 38, he quotes the crowd saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And John, in his account, John 12 and 13, he says that the crowds were also shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Matthew here shows us that there's divine intentionality in what Jesus is doing to demonstrate, to proclaim in his actions that Jesus is king. Now, when I talk about Jesus being king, I think another apt word for us to hear is Lord. I want to ask you, who is Jesus to you in your life? Is he king? Is he Lord? 
If he's Lord, it means that he's master, he's ruler, he's over me. And actually, Jesus uses this word. King is in verse 5. Look in verse 3. Jesus used the word Lord. Do you see that? Look at verse 3 again. Remember, he's given them instructions about getting the animals. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. One of the problems I think that we have in Canada is that we've got no true sense of monarchy. Monarchy. Now, I'm not a monarchist. I'm not getting that whole debate. I don't even care. But I'm just saying, when it comes to understanding the ancient texts and this, like the notion that Jesus is king, it's a stretch for us, I think, to get our minds around that because when we think royalty, we think optional. Right? In Canada, we have, we, have a royal, we have a royal family. We have a king. We had a queen. Now we have a king over us. The jury's still out on how that's going to go. We'll see. We got a king over us, and so we, we are in a monarchy, but ours is a constitutional monarchy. I don't know if you knew that. I doubt you even care, but I'm just telling you, it's a constitutional monarchy, which means, yes, we have a king, but he, he can't come here and start making laws and rules. Laws are made in his name. People who break laws are prosecuted in his name. But in a constitutional monarchy, we've got the figurehead. We acknowledge the king. We may even show up when he comes for a visit. But he's not allowed to come and make rules and change our way of life. No, that's his place over there, not here. So you stay over the ocean, do whatever it is you and your family do over there, whatever. We'll be amused by you when we're bored or feeling down about ourselves. But other than that, you just know your place. I think a problem that we have, that maybe many of us have, is that we treat Jesus like that. Oh, yeah, he's king. Oh, yeah, he's Lord, yes. But for too many of us, it's just a title. When it comes to Jesus holding sway in your life, when it comes to his demands on your money, on your time, on your passions, on your thought life, on your love life, sometimes our reaction toward him is, well, no, you just, you just keep over here. You can be the Lord, you can be the king in the honorific sense. I don't really want you coming in and being in my business. Of course, we never say that. That doesn't sound right. That won't fly down at the church. But lots of times we live like that. In fact, I wonder if there's a particular area in your life right now where you are treating Jesus like Charles instead of the Lord. Think about this. Jesus said to a group of people one time, they're calling him Lord. He said, hey, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He's like, don't you see the dissonance? You call me Lord, which is true and right, because I am the king. I'm over you. I, I have authority over you. But you don't treat me like that. You disregard my commandments. You pick and choose which ones will fit you in your circumstance. Well, the reality is, is that ours is a calling to submit to him as the king as the Lord of our lives. This is his position, his authority, his kingship is actual. And so his kingship is real over our affections, our ambitions, our actions. We are to come under him. It's not our submission to him that saves us. No, we're saved by faith. But when we're saved, we do submit to him. It's an evidence of our friendship with him. The faith that saves you results in submission to him as king, as Lord. Loved ones, look and see the authority of Jesus in his position. He's king. 
in his power, he's in charge. He's in charge. Do you see that in this text? Like, he, he is so in charge of what is going on here. I see it especially, you know, in the whole, the whole deal getting the donkey. And, like, he's just got that all set up. Again, I think it's just his providential working. But regardless, all that's going on here is very intentional, very deliberate. And Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, not to become a victim of circumstance, but to carry out his own providential plan. John 10 and 18, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said this, make a note of this, get this down. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and, praise God, I have authority to take it up again. So what's going on here? He's arriving in Jerusalem, so at the end of the week, he'll be crucified. This is, he's not a victim of circumstance. He's totally, emphatically, 100% in control. And loved ones, I think it's so important for you and I to remember that when we go through our difficulties, that he's totally in control. He's totally in charge. He's got this. There is no trouble that befalls you. There's no opposition that comes your way. There's no loss. There's no heartbreak. There's no grief that he isn't Lord over and fully in control of. And there isn't anything that's going to land on your plate today or show up in your life tomorrow that he isn't over. And for you and for me, we can wrestle with the mystery of that, but my exhortation to you today is to take comfort in the truth of that. But he's got this. I was thinking this morning as I was preparing to uh, come to church and to preach this, I was thinking about a, a friend of ours who was in our previous uh, church where we were, and uh, a young woman a number of years ago, sadly, was diagnosed with cancer. And whoa, she had a rough go. It was a very rough journey for her, and she fought, and uh, for a season, her cancer went into remission, and I remember uh, fondly celebrating God's grace to her and God's goodness, but then in time, we got word, we heard that the cancer had come back, and uh, as a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, she, as the world would say, she lost her battle to cancer, but as I reflect on her and her testimony, I remember very distinctly in the midst of what she was going through, her looking at me and saying these words, Ross, God's got this. God's got this. Really, Lyle? Really? Even though now you're in the ground, he's got this? Well, look to Jesus. What did Jesus go through? Did everything go swimmingly for him? No. In five days, he'd be murdered Ridiculed, mocked, beaten, crucified, dead, buried. Hmm. Is he saying he's in charge? Oh, yes, my friend. Because after Friday, there was Saturday, and then after Saturday, there was Sunday. And on Sunday, he arose. And death was defeated. We're singing about that, weren't we? Death was arrested. My life began. Yes, Lael was right. God's got this. And there is coming a day when she will testify to that again. I'm certain of that. His power. He is in charge. What are you going through right now? What are you facing? He's got this. And he's got you. And when you look at the authority of Jesus, Sometimes we wrestle with that in our flesh, but this morning, loved one, I want you to rest in it. That he's got this. He's in charge. Look at his authority. 
His position, he's king. His power, he's in charge. His purpose, he's on mission. I can't get over the fact that when you stand back and look at what is happening here, Jesus is deliberately walking into Jerusalem for the purpose of going to the cross. And why would he go to the cross? Why would he allow that? Why would he plan for that to happen? So that you and I could have the forgiveness of sins. I mentioned earlier that we indeed have a huge sin problem. All of us are guilty and our sin separates us from God. But what we see happening here is Jesus is on his way to rescue. It's like, it's like you and I are hopeless and helpless in our sin. We, got, we don't even know enough to cry out to God, let, al- let alone to, to cry out to come and rescue us. He sees us there in our sin. And when we look at the triumphal entry, it's as though Jesus sees us in our sin, destined for a lost eternity, in our own shame and mire. And what he's doing here is he's rolling up his sleeves and saying, I am coming for you. That's what I want you to see in the triumphal entry. His mission, his purpose. It would have been easier for him to just stand back and leave us to what we deserve all on our own from our own earnings. But that's not how he handled it. In fact, we see in the redemption story that he is the great rescuer who comes and pulls us up out of this pit and rescues us from the bondage that we're into to sin. He rolls up his sleeves and gets it done. And Sunday, he's on his way in. By Friday, he will make payment. By Sunday, he's achieved life and resurrection. And this is the beginning and the end of redemption is found in him. He's got you. He's got this. And loved one, my call on you is to see him on mission and rejoice in him. When you see him intentionally coming in Jerusalem to save you, does it not stir your heart with something? Does it not make you want to worship him? Does it not want to make you want to just sing just a little louder? To tell someone about how good he is, how good is he? I love that song. To sing that, to tell someone, to, to well up with worship. Let your heart be filled with the reminder, the vision of his love as he makes his way in to save you and me. You see, I just so want you to see this is not a far off distant story. This is your story. You're grafted into this, baby. You're grafted into this. This is your account of what Jesus has done for you. See his authority. So often we struggle with authority, don't we? But my call on you is to see the beauty of it. See this Jesus who's the king, who's in charge, who's on mission to come and to save you and save me. Oh, encounter him, loved one. Look at the authority of Jesus yeah, as we look at the authority of Jesus, there's something else that's unmistakable. I mean, you, you can't not notice it. It's that as authoritative as he is, as royal as he is, he's also presented here as remarkably, stunningly humble. Humble. Look, even verse 5, the prophecy that Matthew cites from Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you. I love that. Your king is coming to you. To me, to me, your king is coming to you. Notice, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Look and see the authority of Jesus. Hope Niagara, secondly, look and see the humility of Jesus. The one who's great in power, position, and person comes with gentleness meekness, and in peace. And I think there's at least two applications from this for us to lay hold of here today. 
When you look and see the humility of Jesus, we see here that he sets an example for his people to follow. He sets for us an example here for us to follow. I'm reminded that the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 and verse 5, he said this. Talk about Jesus and what he did for us on this week that we're studying. He said, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Or another translation puts it this way. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Take on his attitude. Look and see his attitude. Look and see him entering Jerusalem. Watch him closely this week, this week that we're studying, and see his humility. He had much. There's much reason for Jesus to make much of himself because he's worthy. And yet we see him humble here on a donkey, making his way into the city where he'll be humbled even more. The gross indignity of being falsely accused and publicly shamed, denied all justice, and murdered. Jesus said this, Mark 8 and 34, he said, if anyone would come after me, is that you? You want you a follower of Jesus? You want to follow him? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny self, take up cross, and follow me. Deny myself. It's not about me. I'm going to follow Jesus. I got to get that straight. It's not about me. We see this example of humility in Jesus, and he wants us to have that too. It's not about me. It's about the glory of God. Take up my cross. That's a death to self. It's not about me anymore. I got to embrace God's will for my life no matter what. Like my commitment, when I deny self, what, what I'm doing, when I take, deny self and take up my cross, what I'm doing is saying, Lord Jesus, I'm going to follow you. You're in charge of my life. You are Lord. And whatever you want me to do, my commitment, my answer to you is yes, even before I know what it is you want me to do. It's already yes. So he calls us to deny self, take up cross, he says our cross, and to follow him, to go his way, to, to, to do what he does, to think how he thinks, to make his priorities our priorities. I mean, it's astonishing enough that Jesus took on flesh and came into this world, but, then, but not only that, he allowed himself, he ordained that he would suffer as he did, and we see this here. He comes in great, awesome humility. This is not a marginal issue in the Christian life, did you know that? but is inextricably linked to your following of Jesus. He said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So I got to ask myself, how can I follow this Jesus and at the same time be all about me? And I think this applies to us in some real particular ways. I'll apply this to myself, and if this applies to you, then you just join in and lay hold of that. Jesus shows me the way, the one how to deal with other people. And my attitude toward other people, sometimes I don't do very good with other people because other people are other people. Do you know what I'm saying? Winston Churchill, who was the king of cutting remarks, said this one time about one of his political opponents. He said, he is a modest little man with much to be modest about. I'm sure whoever said that, it was meant to hurt. But I also think, you know, he could have said that about anybody. He could say that about me and it'd be true. I have much to be modest about, but Jesus didn't, and yet he was humble. You watch him this week in his life, loved ones. You watch him and see how he carries himself. See the gentleness. See the lowliness. See the submission. Yes, he got angry in the temple one day. We'll get to that. 
But we see from Jesus again and again kindness, kind answers, and at times, at times when every fiber of us is just writhing inside saying, how could they treat him like this? How could they say this to him? Jesus is silent. I think this is instructive for us. I think it really is. I think too many Christians are angry people railing and finger-pointing and accusing, even the people within the church. But we don't hear Jesus, we don't see Jesus acting like that. Here's where I'm at. I think that my life is too short and my numbered days are too few for me to spend any kind of time bickering and arguing and being angry with others about things that 100 years from now will not matter at all. I still want to live my life like that. And my conviction in that comes from looking to Jesus. I see the humility, and I'm convicted in my heart. That's what I need to be also. So it makes me pray, God, help me. God, help me. I wonder for some of us today, is there maybe some confession we need to make before our spouses? about our attitudes. Maybe you need to get low before your teenager, parent. Maybe, dear brother, sister, you've got to acknowledge together it's not okay for my desire to come between you and me. Paul says, Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. Now that's the kind of competition Jesus is into. I wonder if we're into it as well. So I see the humility and the example he sets for us to follow in my relationships with others. I also think it applies, too, when we think about tough assignments. Some of you right now, God has given you in your life a tough assignment. That is to say, you're in a season, you're in a circumstance that's painful, that's difficult, and in some cases, you're not sure when or if it'll ever end. Think about some who are facing real spiritual opposition. Some who are staring down a serious health crisis. Maybe others of you are just trying to care for and minister to aging parents. And the challenge that is. Some of our, some of our people are in very challenging marriages right now. Some are dealing with unwanted pressures in their singleness. And there's lots of you that are experiencing right now significant setbacks. Losses. Maybe even demotions. Heartache and heartbreak and hardship in your work life. There's many of us here who have, from God right now, a tough assignment. Loved one, I just say to you, turn your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. One, he knows all about tough assignments. We see him taking one on right here in our text today. He knows what it is to be handed a difficult hand to be given a tough assignment. But he also shows us the way. He shows us that by the grace of God, we can, by God's grace, indeed submit to the Father's will and accept from God not only the good things, but the hard things, trusting him that he's got this and that somehow, someway, even in ways we can't even put together or fathom our minds, that he has good in view. There's an example here for us to follow in being faithful It's remarkable that part of Jesus' humility was that he was faithful to his Father and did not sin in times and in circumstances where we might ourselves not stand a chance. 
Look and see the humility of Jesus. He sets an example for his people. You got a tough assignment, loved one? All I can tell you is turn your eyes on him. Turn your eyes on him. I don't have anything better. I don't know what else to do but to turn to him and cry out to him. He sets for his people an example to follow. Finally, he makes for his people a way to come. He makes for his people a way to come. This is, I just want to close the sermon here with, with this image that to me, when I read and study the triumphal entry, I think anytime I teach this to count, you're going to hear me talk about this because it's so striking to me. Here we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the first day of the final week of his life, and he very intentionally, very much on purpose, got a ride into town, didn't he? He rode what? He rode a, a donkey, right? Isn't the donkey? This is a great English word. Just say it. He rode a, rode a donkey. Why did he ride a donkey? Why did he choose a donkey? Because of its symbolic significance. We see the prophecy of Zechariah pointing out that the king would come humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In the ancient Near East, when a ruler, when a royal figure would enter into a realm riding on a donkey, it was a sign and symbol of peace. He comes in peace, he comes for peace. As he shows up in town here, Jesus is riding a donkey because it's an unmistakable picture of a royal authoritative figure coming in peace and for peace. And loved ones, that's exactly what Jesus is coming to do in Jerusalem, isn't he? He's coming to make peace. He comes in peace and to make peace between people and God. You know, the Bible tells us that on our own, we are enemies of God. Because of our sin, we're at odds with him. We're at enmity with him. And there is a wall of division of separation between us and God. And it's hostile. God is, stands ready to judge us, and justly because of our wickedness and our sin. But here we see Jesus on the first day of the last week of his earthly life, coming into Jerusalem. On Friday, he's going to be crucified to pay for those sins. And what's the beautiful picture? Well, it's a picture of Jesus coming and riding on a donkey for peace. And that's the situation right now. Right now, we stand in a place of wonderful grace where Jesus has secured for us an offer of peace from God. In fact, there's an offer of peace on the table right now before you where you can have peace with Almighty God, not only the forgiveness of your sins, but friendship with him, and not only friendship with him, adoption into his very family, like that kind of peace. All the enmity taken away, all of your sins set aside. Jesus came to secure that. He rides on a donkey to secure for you an offer of peace, and that's where things stand right now. But there's coming a day, the Bible says, when Jesus returns, and when he returns, the Bible says that he will be riding another animal. When he came into Jerusalem, that first Palm Sunday, he was riding a donkey because he came in peace and for peace. But when he returns, Revelation 19 says that he will not be riding a donkey, but he will be riding a horse. You say, what's the significance of that? Because in the ancient Near East, while the donkey is a symbol of peace, the horse is a symbol of war. Say, so, well, why is he riding in a horse with a symbol of war? Because there's coming a day when the one who has secured this offer of peace will come back as the judge. And Revelation 19 and 11 says, 
But then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Makes war against two, against all who do not obey his gospel, against those who choose to persist in their own way in rebellion against him and his rightful sovereign authority, against all those who will not receive and accept his offer of peace. There's a day when he will judge all sin. So loved ones, see his authority and see his humility how he makes a way for his people to come. Now, as you hear this, you may be thinking to yourself, I want that offer of peace. I'll take it. But what do I do? How do I do that? Well, you've heard of the ABCs, haven't you? Well, here's the CBAs. Confess, believe, accept. Confess, that you need this Jesus, and you need peace with God, and on your own you don't. Confess the truth that God knows, and I suspect you know, that you've sinned, that you're a sinner. Admit it, confess that Jesus is the only way. Believe, believe indeed that Jesus came to make a way for you to be forgiven, that he really did die on the cross for you, he really did rise from the dead. There's lots for you to learn, perhaps. Maybe there's still some things you don't understand, but if you will believe in him, the Bible says, you will be saved. And then A is accept. Accept him as the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. You say, well, that, that's a cute acronym, Ross, but how do I actually do that? Look away from yourself and trust him. And I think a great way to express that and give voice to that is to tell him that in prayer. And that's how I want to close right now this sermon. Alec and his team are going to come and lead us in a closing song of worship. I just want to lead you right now in a prayer where if you, you could just by agreement with me, or even just use your own words, God can hear what's in your thoughts. He'll hear the whisper on your lips. You can even pray out loud. But let's take a moment here to speak to the Lord in prayer about these things.